This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner in this historic war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come. The whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, man. How about you? Man, I'm fired up. We had a great week this week, and I guess we should just go ahead and get started with why we're really here, man. It's Bash at the Beach, 1994. This was not even close, man. Um, This is maybe the most important show in WCW history up until this point. Is that fair to say? I think oh, it definitely is. Definitely is. You know, I got up really early this morning at four thirty to uh to watch the Bash at the Beach on on the WWE network because I really I hadn't I hadn't gone back and looked you know, I don't look at old tapes, I don't go back and watch stuff. So it what has it been now? You know, twenty four years uh since that event. And it was just so amazing to me to go back and watch that and put myself back in that period of time and all the things that were going on then and, and, you know, bringing Hulk Hogan in, it was just, it was a real pivot point for WCW. It really, really was. So one of the things we want to do with this show today, I want to just let everybody know right up front, we're not going to focus on the signing of Hulk Hogan as much as we are the actual show. And we are, of course, going to talk about the decision to go straight to Hogan Flair. And that's what we're going to spend the majority of the show about. But we're going to talk about signing Hulk Hogan on another episode because I do feel like that warrants its own show. Let's sort of set the stage for WCW in 1994, though, Eric. You're coming off Slamboree, which only drew 2,700 paid fans and had to be considered a disaster. And this happened... Um, only after you had finally finished negotiating with Hulk Hogan. So it feels like, you know, Hey, let's just sort of get through Slamboree. And then we've got this next big thing on the horizon. And it's speculated in the dirt sheets at the time that Flair Hogan at Starcade is probably the plan because Starcade had usually been the top show for WCW. And it feels like according to the dirt sheets, after a really, really poor performance at Slamboree, now maybe those decisions and that plan changes a little bit, and and we're going to sort of hot shot the Flair Hogan match for July, and you know everybody's in a bit of a tailspin about what to do. At least that's the narrative from the dirt sheets, and I know you're going to jump on this in a big way, but can you sort of speculate or or go back in your thinking? Was the original idea Flair Hogan, or is that just someone speculating what Starcade or, or what what Starcade may have been? No, again, again, that's a, a complete fabrication by whoever wrote it. Um, it was always when we knew we were going to bring Hogan in, when it looked like the deal was going going to close, and we were confident that that was going to happen. We had only planned; we had not even discussed holding it off to Starcade. Whoever came up with that, again, is connecting dots that didn't really exist. The the plan, the original plan was to go right to Hogan and Flair. Um, and, and, and you know, I can go into the reasons for it if, yeah. if you want to, but Absolutely. it really was the original plan. There was no other alternative. We weren't reacting to the bad number for Slamboree. You know, one of the things that people 
you know, you need to realize again, and I, you know, I have to remind myself too, is when you go back to 1994, you know, our, the biggest platform that WCW had was the WCW Saturday night show. And this would be a little bit, you know, going into the weeds, but historically in all television, not just for WCW and not just for TBS, but once once summer, once summer comes, once it's really springtime and it starts staying lighter later and the weather gets warmer throughout the majority of the United States, it's, you know, it wasn't so, you know, you weren't really affected in the southeast part of the United States, obviously. But in, in the, the rest of the United States, when all of a sudden it's springtime, you know, it's staying light till 8 o'clock at night or 8.30 at night, it's 60, 70 degrees out, you know, the, the, the term in television is called the hut level or households using television, the hut levels historically and still do to this day, hut levels drop dramatically starting in around April. So, you know, the, the, the poor number at Slamboree had as much to do with the fact that nobody was watching our shit, you know, on TBS, our, our television ratings went down and that's, that, that's only one of the challenges. The other challenges was Slamboree just wasn't a great event. Um, we 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 didn't do a great job building up the legacies and the 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 legends that were a part of it and that type of thing. So it just wasn't a a uh, a, a big pay per view for us. So we weren't reacting to a bad number necessarily at Slamboree. We simply were planning and executing on the original intent of Hogan and Flair. So the dirt sheets even speculate that one of the original ideas would have been a tag team with, you know, flair on one side, Hogan on another, and then they've got other guys in there. Of course, that traditional sort of wrestling thinking would mean somebody can win or lose without either one of the top guys taking the pinfall. That is more traditional booking. Did anybody on the committee suggest something like that, that you recall? No, no. And, and I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked to Ric Flair about this when you were doing the show with Rick, but the, when I say the original intent, I mean, it was a clear, bright red fluorescent line around the, the creative that we had been discussing with Hulk from day one, from conversation one, uh, when it started getting serious, uh, with Rick and I and Hulk, because Rick was instrumental in bringing Hulk in and the original discussions between Hulk and Rick and myself were bash at the beach. There, there was no tag team alternatives. There was no starcade. There wasn't none of that. That, that's simply all speculation, and and connecting of dots that didn't exist, and taking wild ass guesses by people who wrote that kind of stuff, for the people who like to read that kind of stuff. They were just filling the pages with with whatever they thought may have been going on, but none of it was factual. Well, all right. Um, let's talk about, you know, you, you said the decision was, was, you know, right in front of you and everybody knew, talk me through why you felt like we just need to go straight there. I mean, there was, what was there, is it based on just the contract value? And let me finish before you shit all over that. A lot of times in the NFL, I'm going to make a sports analogy here. If you, if you draft a quarterback really, really high and you pay him a lot of money, there's pressure for him to perform to that level. So it is a, a deal where, Hey, if we're going to pay Hogan all this money, then we need to get a big return in a hurry. We don't need to hope that eventually we can get there. 
let's try to get it right now since we've got such a significant investment. Is that sort of the thinking? No, not at all. The thinking really was right or wrong, good or bad. Knowing that Hulk coming over to WCW, the announcements, the the press that we were going to get or hoped, I guess I should say, we were going to get that came along with that, just the buzz that we were creating in the community and, 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 and in the industry um, was going to be at its peak as soon as he came on board, he meaning Hulk. That was about as much momentum, we believed, as we could possibly create for Hulk Hogan. So the idea, my idea was, you know, why, why risk letting that momentum, that energy, that focus, that buzz dissipate over a period of three or four or five months now that people are used to Hulk Hogan being in WCW rather than letting, rather than losing that momentum and losing that buzz, which is really hard to create. Momentum is a very difficult thing to create, but once you create it, you've got to embrace it. You've got to, you've got to exploit it for everything you can. And I knew that the, the, the buzz, the hype, the press, the free advertising, none of that we would have been able to recreate three or four or five or six months later. So it had nothing to do with the face value of his contract or feeling like we had, you know, we were under pressure and we had to perform. It was quite obviously, it was, it was not that, you know, we had the confidence of Ted Turner. Otherwise we wouldn't have been able to bring Hulk Hogan in. You know, I had the confidence of WCW management, or I should say Turner broadcasting management at that time. They, they started to really believe in a lot of the things that I was doing. So I didn't feel any pressure whatsoever, financial or otherwise. What I felt was, and it was obvious to me, and it should be, I think, or would be to most people, is look, we're going to get a ton of press. We're going to get a ton of hype, ton of buzz, as I said. Let's exploit it now rather than hoping it's going to be there six months from now. When you first, you know, obviously you say you've got the support of Ted Turner and you know that this is going to be a big media opportunity. When you first pitched the idea to Flair and Hogan, what are their reactions? I don't know that I pitched the idea to Flair and Hogan as much as it was so organic in all the original conversations that it wasn't really a question. You know, it, it wasn't like I sat back and said, okay, if we're going to do this, this is the way we have to do it. Um, I'd like to make myself sound like, you know, a really smart guy and suggest that that was true, but, it, but it's not the original, I mean, just early on in my discussions with Rick, you know, they were more in the context of, look, you know, we have a chance to bring Hulk Hogan. How can we best take advantage of that? Wow. We can do bash at the beach, Hogan and flair. I mean, it was so, um, obvious, I guess to me and, and to Rick and to Hulk as well, that the you know, to strike why the iron is hot, that it really wasn't a pitch. A lot of us fans really talk about Flair Hogan and say, oh, that should have been the WrestleMania eight man event. When you, to the best of your recollection, when you're discussing this different opportunity that, Hey, now we're going to get to have this match for WCW. Do you remember either one of the guys or anyone in the conversation, even referencing the perhaps missed opportunity at WrestleMania for this sort of dream match? 
Yeah, there was some, you know, there was some peripheral conversations about it, but it was very uh, offhand and, and in no no real detail. Kind of a just a shaking of the head. Wow, this could have been really great, but hey, now we've got an opportunity to do it. So it it it, it was brought up, I think, in the in in the larger context of what we were doing, and the fact that it was a missed opportunity. But there was never, you know, I, I don't think it was you know more than a a brief comment or two along the way. A lot of people would say that this dream match of Flair and Hogan was 10 years too late. And I think the most recent example we could see of that maybe somewhere else was people were saying that Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao was way too late. But then when the buy rate rolls in, it sets all kinds of records, biggest fight in history at the time, et cetera, et cetera. When you're hearing the criticism, cause you had to be hearing it, that this is maybe 10 years too late because wrestling is certainly not nearly as hot as it was in 94. I say it was in 84. What's the feedback that your, your team is getting when you hear that criticism? You know, I don't, you know, everybody was different. I, I didn't pay too much attention to it. You know, for me, I was grateful that it didn't happen 10 years earlier because it wouldn't have been as important 10 years later. Uh, even though, you know, as you point out wrestling, you know, was at a different level, uh, and a different peak and there was a big buzz on it, you know, 10 years earlier, but for me and for WCW, you know, we were, <laughs> I'll speak for myself. I was grateful that it hadn't happened. Uh, otherwise we would, we would have been repeating history instead of creating it. And, and I, I would much rather be in a position of creating history than repeating it. So, uh, I, I just, I let it roll off my back. I didn't worry about it or think about it. So I want to have a conversation about Hogan's contract here a little bit without getting into a ton of specifics, because I know I didn't shoot you 40 pages of notes. Like I normally do. Thank God almighty. I got up at four 30 thinking, oh, I've got to turn on my laptop and see what he sent me. And when I woke up this morning and I saw there was nothing there, all I had to do was watch the pay-per-view. I was so excited. It was, a, it, it made my day. Well, so there you go. So I, I don't want us to deviate into a. Uh, you know, F Dave Meltzer rant here, but I do want to talk about some of the ways. And I feel like we've talked about this a lot lately, but I do feel like it bears repeating because a lot of Meltzer's writings at the time were based on sort of traditional wrestling thinking. And I feel like it's important to remind everybody here that this is not a traditional wrestling company. This is a television company that's putting on wrestling shows. I'm saying all that because. I feel like we need to get in a bit of a time capsule and go back to 1994 to really appreciate what a big name Hulk Hogan was. This is before Stone Cold Steve Austin. This is before The Rock. This is before Goldberg and the NWO. The marquee name in professional wrestling for more than a decade was Hulk Hogan. And when it was hot, when wrestling was at its hottest in history, Hulk Hogan was the guy on lunchboxes, on cartoons, on Saturday Night Live, wherever you looked, Hulk Hogan was there. The cover of Sports Illustrated, from a pop culture standpoint, he was the guy. He was perhaps bigger than WCW as a brand. Not even perhaps, definitely was. I mean, he was the brand. So I'm, I'm laying all that groundwork to get to this. Hogan brought other value than just ticket sales and pay-per-views because you're also out here trying to sell ad space for your television product. And usually a wrestling company just has a deal with a television company and then they get paid for producing the content. This is different. You guys had at Turner, 
a tremendous organization that was based around selling ads on your programming. And the idea that all of a sudden you could slide Hulk Hogan in there now took WCW that you had to sort of explain what it was in that it's wrestling, but it's not WWF. And now you can say, oh, we've got Hulk Hogan because the WWF, when it was at its hottest, it sort of became known as, I mean, wrestling became known as the WWF, much like, you know, 10 years ago, people didn't say mixed martial arts. They said ultimate fighting. Well, that's a brand like a bandage, but people don't call it that. They say band-aid and a, a tissue. People say Kleenex. Uh, it's one of those sort of deals. What value can you attribute that? I mean, obviously Turner saw the vision, but how, you know, just incredibly different does the sales pitch look when you slide a Hulk Hogan in there? That's a really good observation. And I appreciate the setup. And, you know, you started out talking about how, you know, Dave Meltzer, you know, based a lot of his writings or, or whatever it is he, he put out there on on a traditional wrestling company. And, and you're right. WCW was not a traditional wrestling company, nor was I a traditional person running a wrestling company. WCW had been run like a traditional wrestling company for a long time. That's why it was failing so miserably. Under the previous people who were steering that ship, whether it be Bill Watts or anybody else, um, it wasn't until, and I'm not trying to put myself over here, but one of the things, one of the reasons I got hired and put in the position I was put in as executive producer initially is because I took an out of the box, different approach to WCW. I, I, I was hired specifically because I didn't come at the project or at the challenge from a traditional wrestling point of view. So why Dave and not just Dave, everybody else was trying to, you know, predict what we were going to do and what was really going on behind the scenes based on what they thought was happening. Um, in most cases I was doing the opposite and it was one of the reasons that I wanted to bring Hulk Hogan in. It wasn't a Ted Turner decision. I mean, it was ultimately it was a Ted Turner decision, but it wasn't Ted Turner didn't initiate it. Bill Shaw didn't initiate it. Eric Bischoff did. And the reason I did was one of the same reasons that we started producing our shows down at Disney MGM studios. And we've covered that, but the challenge for me, if you go back in time, you go back to 1994 here, um, and even a little earlier, go back to 1993, Turner Ad Sales, which was based in New York, was responsible for selling the commercial inventory for all of the content that was on both TBS, TNT, Turner Sports, any, any, any TBS property, Turner Classic Movies, whatever was out there at the time. There was a, a large group in New York, and their job was to go out and sell that commercial inventory. So they literally, if you can imagine, Conrad, you and I as salespeople, you know, hitting the streets in New York, and you've got your suitcase full of you know all of your commercial content, all of the television programs you represent – typically salespeople would reach in their bag and pull out the content that was the easiest to sell. Of course. One of the reasons salespeople are great salespeople is they take the path of least resistance, right? They want to make as much money as they can with the least resistance as possible. And as they're reaching into their bag of tricks and trying to sell their, their, their clients, whether it be M&M Mars or GM trucks or Budweiser, whoever it is they're selling, you know, the last thing in the world that they wanted to reach into their bag and pull out and put on a desk was WCW Saturday night. I mean, they were humiliated by it. 
and and that's been well documented you know when you when you if you if you were to talk to people who were in the Turner ad sales department back at that time or talk to guys like Bill Burke who used to be running you know TBS at the time or or Brad Siegel they did not want wrestling at all not because necessarily they didn't like wrestling uh, on a personal level but because it was such an embarrassment to try to sell that was the challenge that we had to overcome we had to clean up the image of WCW raised the production values, but as you as you just pointed out very clearly, we had to dis, we we had to change the perception of, of WCW so that we were no longer that other wrestling company. So when people said wrestling in a in a in a sales presentation, they didn't automatically think of the WWF, as you again clearly pointed out. Bringing Hulk Hogan in helped change the perception, along with other things that we were doing, including Disney. Now all of a sudden, our salespeople could go into a meeting, uh, our ad salespeople could go into a pitch, and they're talking about, yeah, here's our here's our company, you know, WCW. By the way, we produce our shows down at the Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. And here's what that looks like. You know, see those Mickey Mouse ears and that flyover? Oh, no, over here, here's a, here's our number one talent, Hulk Hogan. You mean Hulk Hogan's with WCW? I thought he was with – no, he's with WCW. All of a sudden, the conversation changed dramatically from, from an ad sales perspective. And that's where, you know, when I get hot a lot of times – it's because people who have no idea, have never been within a hundred miles of the business of the wrestling business. And I'm not just talking about, you know, dirt sheet writers. I'm talking about talent. And some of them who have been my friends and still are my friends, who have a very strong opinion about creative and wrestling and what took place in the ring and what should have happened and all that. But none of them have ever spent a minute inside of the business of the wrestling business. And that's why a lot of these decisions, um, especially early on, it's, it's one of the reasons why 94 was such a critical pay-per-view. Almost every decision we made and started making at that time was really more about the business of the wrestling business than it was the wrestling inside of the wrestling ring. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Let me ask you, you know, I don't want to get into a lot of the particulars of the contract because we'll save that for another time, but Meltzer lays it all out in the observer for better or worse. But one of the things that he mentions is that he believes it to be a six month deal to the best of your recollection. Is that the original term of the first contract? We're going to get you in. Okay. No, and I'm happy to go into it if you want to go into it or if you want to save it, but I can tell you unequivocally that is wrong. That's okay. just flat wrong. Okay. Well, we'll talk about all the numbers some other time because it is fascinating, but I do want to mention that you guys didn't start promoting this immediately like a lot of people would imagine. Obviously, the signing of Hogan gets a ton of mainstream publicity, and that comes out on June 6th, and... It's been written here that you guys are going to have like a six week flight to build the pay-per-view 
and Meltzer would freestyle that you're not going to really announce the match until two weeks prior to the pay-per-view. And he suggests that in order for the show to break even, you're going to need a 0.87 by rate, which quote, virtually everyone in wrestling believes to be the impossible dream for the company to maintain its current level of profitability as it had without Hogan. The thought of course, is that Hogan's name value is such that it will take WCW quote to a new level, the new nineties catchphrase in the entertainment world for attempting to justify bad business deals. <laughs> Which see, I, that, see that now it's I, I, I promised myself after last week's show with Pillman, I was not going to allow anything or anyone to piss me off. I, I, I've been, I've been saying that to myself all fucking week long, but just, you know, writing that the way he wrote that is such an inference to bad business, poor judgment, people not knowing what they're going. It was, it's such a, a not even a, a subtle shot. It was such a direct shot at the decision and the people involved in the process. And ultimately it proved to be, well, it proved to be what it is bullshit. You know, the, the, the decision to bring Hulk Hogan in ultimately proved to be the thing that had made WCW profitable for the very first time in its fucking history. All right. So that's an example and I'm not hot, but that's a perfect example of how ignorant, inexperienced and uninformed much of what that person wrote during that period of time, because history has proven them to be flat out wrong. That's as far as I'm, that's as close as I'm going to get to a rant today, Conrad. Well, I mean, I do think it's fun though, you know, that his math would show that you need a 0.87 buy rate and most everyone's saying, man, that's so far from reality. Here's a spoiler for you. We're going to get there. Eventually they do a lot more than 0.87. So this number that Meltzer thought you needed to break even, that was an impossibility. You fucking shatter. So kudos to you. The, the pay-per-view exceeded all expectations from industry experts. Uh, and even some of your early speculations as well, or at least what was reported in the observer. We'll get there. But, but can I, but can I jump in there just for a minute? Sure. Here, here, here's a note, you know, first of all, I, I would like at some point in my life before I die to sit down with Meltzer and say, just exactly how did you come up since Dave Meltzer wouldn't and couldn't have possibly known what our expenses going into that pay-per-view were. He, he certainly and couldn't have possibly known, you know, the production expenses, the talent expenses. I'm guessing he had no idea what kind of airfare, what kind of insurance um, was involved in putting on that view, that pay-per-view. So if you have no idea what the expenses for a pay-per-view could possibly be, how could you then calculate the amount of revenue would be required to break even? I mean, I just, I mean, you talk about a wild ass guess. That's an example of just fiction presented as fact. And it sounds very convincing. He's going to need to do, they're going to need to do a 0.87 to break even. That's a very definitive number. Okay. It's a very specific number. He didn't say they're going to have to do between a 0.75 and a 1.0. That would have been okay. But to, to, to position such a specific number as fact implies 
that you have inside information that 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 gives you the right or gives you the the credibility, I guess, to put that out there. When in fact he wouldn't have a fucking clue how much that pay per view cost to put on. In fairness, though, you know, it's no secret that the way Meltzer got a lot of this information was relationships he had with people on the inside who, for whatever reason, wanted to feed him that info, maybe for some sort of leverage or you know, favoritism or whatever. But I mean, he had people inside WCW who were sharing. Oh no, he, listen, he did. He did. I'm not denying that. I mean, I'm not only going to not deny it. I, it used to drive me fucking nuts. And, and I suspected who those people were, but a lot of those people didn't really know those numbers unless you, unless you worked in on, on the Turner not the WCW side, but the Turner side of, of accounting and finance. Like if you work for Harry Anderson, for example, who was the CFO, I believe at Turner at the time. Now, maybe if you worked in his office, you might have access to that, to that information, but so much of those budgets and those expenses were in the form of intercompany allocations that even people, even managers, directors, I'll just name a couple of names and I'm not suggesting these people did it by the way, but I'm throwing out examples of, of people on the inside. Zane Bresloff would have never had that information. Gary Juster would have never had that information. Terry Taylor, Kevin Sullivan would have never had that information. Sharon Sadello would have never had that information. There was only a small handful of people, and they would have been directly on the finance side of Turner Broadcasting, not WCW, that would have had accurate information. Now, those other people that I mentioned, you know, whether it be Jim Barnett or Gary Juster or Terry Taylor or anybody else who wanted to feed, and I'm not accusing them of doing it, but if, as an example, if any one of those individuals would have wanted to feed Meltzer information for whatever fucked up reason that motivated them, they would have been feeding him a wild ass guesses. Yeah. That, that's what I wanted to say is, you know, who had the right information is almost secondary to, you know, that the way this happens is somebody calls and says, oh, here's what's going on. Now they may not actually know, but that doesn't matter. Let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story. No, we can't do that because then no one will buy your shit. No, no, I'm not saying that from, from a Meltzer <laughs> standpoint. I'm saying that I know a lot of, and we both know some, some personalities in wrestling who think they're the smartest guy in the room and they can tell you exactly what's going on and they'll state stuff. That's not really true that they believe to be fact. And it's almost like the George Costanza. It's not a lie if I believe it. So here's what I'm saying. I totally see it that a guy like Terry Taylor or Greg Gagne or whoever calls and says, all right, Dave, here's what's going on. And they just, it just fucking spills out. And Dave assumes, well, fuck, they work there. They're in the office. Why would they give me wrong information? What basis would they have to make it up? And sometimes people just make shit up, especially in wrestling. That's my suggestion. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, the value of Hogan in reality, because Meltzer is sort of saying, will Hogan's name help in getting corporate sponsorship quote, if Vince McMahon believed it would have, he never would have let him go without a bigger fight. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Now we've talked about how easier it was going to be from an ad sales standpoint to go sell it. But Meltzer suggesting that the performance of having Hulk Hogan on your card was really not there 
1993. And I think, and even it's interesting when I watched this show back this week, there's lots of references to, oh, Hogan hasn't wrestled in three or four years. And, and Yokozuna squashed him 13 months prior at King of the ring for the WWF. And then he did that European tour in the fall. So he hasn't been out of the ring for a year, but WCW is going to say in commentary, oh, it's been a few years before we circle back to where I was driving about performance of Hogan. Somebody told somebody in a production meeting, Hey, say he hasn't wrestled in a few years. You were trying to drive that fact home. Were you sort of trying to purge everyone's memory of Yokozuna or why was the decision made to sort of ignore anything that he did in, in, in 92 or 93 for that matter? I think that the decision to position Hulk as someone who had been out of the business for, uh, more than 13 months was really just to distance him. Cause it wasn't just, you know, his, his action in the ring, um, or his performance in the ring that we were, you know, aware of, but there was a lot of other, you know, press and, and negative issues that were going on, uh, within the WWF at that time. And I think, you know, we felt comfortable, most comfortable, I should say, creating as much distance from the, the, you know, Hulk hadn't been very active. You know what I mean? I know he wrestled Yokozuna and I know he did those things and that was true, but he wasn't a quote unquote full-time performer. Hadn't been a full-time performer for a couple of years. That, that was kind of the way we were looking at it for right, right or wrong, good or bad. We were trying to create as much distance between ourselves and WWF as we could in in the sense of not wanting to bring any of that negative publicity with us that surrounded WWF at the time. And also, we kind of wanted to make it feel more special, like this was a bigger deal than perhaps people perceived it to be in terms of Hulk Hogan coming over, going back to what we originally started talking about. We wanted to create as much momentum as we could, and we felt, right or wrong, good or bad, that distancing ourselves from WWE as much as we could, um, or WWF at that time, but still elevating Hulk and putting him on a pedestal, making it seem like a really big damn deal, was the best way to go. Of course, the negative publicity you're talking about is the steroid trial. That's all going to be happening around this same time. So... You've got Vince McMahon, you know, in the fight of his life on the other channel. And one of the key pieces that's going to be discussed throughout that is Hulk Hogan steroid use. So it does make sense that we want to distance ourselves a little bit from there. And wrestling had been down for a few years. So if you're referencing that he'd been, you know, that he'd been out for a few years, it does create a little bit of distance on two fronts, one from steroids and two, the dip in business, because everybody remembered the superstar that Hulk Hogan had been, but Meltzer is going to mention in his newsletter that having Hulk Hogan on the marquee didn't mean nearly as much as it used to when it came to gate receipts and whatnot for 1993, when Hogan was there. So it is sort of a catch 22 as Meltzer would call it, because the name value is very important from a sponsorship and, and ad revenue standpoint, but not as much to wrestling fans. Is that another reason to sort of go straight to Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair? Like, Hey, let's strike while the iron's hot. Let's get as much media attention. And now let's give the wrestling fans what they really want and see if we can get them into WCW and then hopefully hang on to them. 
I mean, that's fair. That's what we discussed, you know, a little while ago. You know, capturing momentum, taking advantage of it. It's hard to create. Once you do, you want to exploit it. All of that is another reason, as we discussed, why we wanted to go immediately into it. And honestly, I just wasn't concerned about how wrestling fans were going to react to it. I knew that some people, especially the WCW audience, and people need to realize, you know, going, taking a ride in your time capsule again, you know, there was still, you know, TBS. WCW, even though we were a distant number two prior to Hulk Hogan coming in and prior, you know, to 95 and 96, you know, going back to 91, 92, 93, you know, the WCW audience was a very loyal, you know, TBS former NWA audience. They didn't like the WWF, even though many of them probably watched it. They identified with WCW. Granted, they were a much smaller audience. They were a different kind of audience that appreciated a different kind of wrestling because of what they grew up watching. Whether it was, you know, Jerry Jarrett, you know, in in, in um, Memphis and in Nashville and Louisville or wherever. Whether it was the Fullers in in Alabama. Whether it was Florida Championship Wrestling. There was a, a similarity in in presentation and history and legacy. Not only with the way they watched wrestling, but a lot of the talent that was there. And they looked at, you know, WCW as their kind of their wrestling company and the WWF is those guys. And I knew it was not hard to figure out when we brought Hogan in there, you know, we were kind of shattering that paradigm or that loyalty, I guess is a better way to say it. There were going to be a lot of WCW fans that weren't happy about Hulk Hogan being there. We anticipated that. Um, so it was the, the wrestling fan, as I've tried to say before, and maybe I don't do a good job articulating it. The wrestling fan and the wrestling fans reaction was secondary to the business strategy and the tactics that we needed to employ in order to grow the business of the wrestling business. Because if we couldn't grow the business of the wrestling business, we weren't going to be around long enough to figure out a way to satisfy the wrestling consumer. I'm really glad that you said that because. I was, I want to read this from Meltzer and I, I do think he's making some great points here, but is signing Hogan a mistake? It depends on how you look at it. If the company truly wants to be number one in the U S wrestling industry, because bragging rights and whatever benefits go with them are more important than profit and contrary to belief in many businesses, ego overrides profit signing Hogan becomes a necessary bad risk. So that's the negative side of what Meltzer's saying, but this man, this makes a lot of sense. Quote, WCW may not become number one with Hogan. It probably won't, but it definitely won't without him. Without him, realistically, it will at best tread water in a sea of red ink. Hogan may drown the company in that ink, but the company has been on life support for years and drowning won't necessarily result in anyone pulling the plug. And there is a slim chance that he is a miracle life preserver. Most importantly, nobody else in the cha- in the industry has a chance of being that life preserver. I think that's really astute, and I know you're going to shit on it just because of who wrote it. But the the idea of hey, they might not be number one with Hogan, but they definitely won't without him makes a lot of sense to me. Did you see this gamble? Because this is relatively early in your tenure as sort of the big boss. Did you see this as, boy, if this shit don't work, I'm probably out of here. Not really. And, and, 
you know, it's, it's interesting you say, no, I want to get this out because I know you're going to shit all over it because of who wrote it. Look, I, it, it's, I don't hate Dave Meltzer, and I don't think that everything he's written is wrong. And this is a perfect example of it. I agree with everything that he said. Wow. Um, I, I don't agree with, you know, he has he had a different perspective, and and obviously I think history has proven him to be incorrect. Uh, but at least he wasn't making shit up. No, that's a, I think that's a perfect example of a guy who's making an observation from his own personal opinion. He's not stating anything as fact in there. He's not giving any inside information to support his opinion. He's just giving his his opinion. And I think a lot of people held that opinion. And m- most of them were justified in doing so. But to answer your question um, – no, I didn't. I didn't feel like I had a gun to my head, and I, 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 and I'm not sure why. To be honest with you, in retrospect, I probably should have. But when I was hired, you know, as executive producer, um, I was encouraged to think out of the box, to continue to try to create opportunities in a different way that they have been created before. It's one of the reasons why I had the confidence to sit down and have a conversation with Hulk Hogan before I even mentioned it to Bill Shaw or to Ted Turner or anybody else, because I was encouraged to do that. You, you, and again, if you go back, jump in the Conrad Thompson time capsule now and take a ride back to 1994 or 19, you know, late 1993, you know, the Turner organization, not just WCW, not just me, but the Turner organization, Ted Turner, you know, from, from Ted Turner on down, the culture at Turner Broadcasting was very entrepreneurial. I mean, it was Ted Turner rewarded people who took risks. He was fucking Captain Outrageous. Okay. I mean, he was the ultimate risk taker. He did shit everybody told him wouldn't work from CNN. When people would tell Ted Turner, fuck, people don't even want to watch 20 minutes of news every night. Why are you going to broadcast it 24 hours a day? And he did it anyway. And he changed the world in the process. Buying the MGM film library was a fucking stupid idea that everybody just shook their heads and couldn't figure out why Ted Turner would possibly do that. Ended up helping making the company. There was just a there's such a multitude of decisions that Ted Turner made that were all almost as outrageous as some of the shit that he said on a regular basis. But that was Ted. He was the ultimate media entrepreneur. And that that culture, that, that, that impact of Ted Turner really permeated a lot of the different divisions within Turner Broadcasting in the early and mid-90s. And because of that, I guess – I, I just kind of went in with my eyes wide open. I tried to be as creative as I could be. And, and I'm not talking about inside of the wrestling ring, but creative from a business perspective in, in trying to grow WCW and get us to that first dollar of profit that everybody thought would never, ever happen. And we would, you know, continually live, as Dave pointed out, in that sea of red ink. My goal was just to make a dollar. That was my goal. If I could, if I could be the guy that could make $1 in profit, not break even, just make $1, then I knew I was going to be on a roll. And I believed in myself and I believed in the product and I believed in the business in general that there would be a way to achieve it if we were, you know, as smart as we could be and as lucky as we were, we we could possibly be, I knew it could be done. So I wasn't afraid. 
to answer your question in a less long-winded way. I didn't feel any <laughs> pressure. I didn't feel like if it failed, I was going to be out of a job. To the contrary, I felt motivated, inspired, and secure in the decisions I was making. Let's talk about something else that's happening in the business here. Let's talk about Scorpio because Scorpio has let go around this same time and he takes to the media to sort of discuss it. He appears on Eddie Goldman's program in New York. It's WBAIFM, and he's complaining about Buff Bagwell being saddled as his tag team partner. He says he's a nice guy, but he couldn't lace my boots. He says he was fired for failing a series of drug tests. And, you know, he, he says that there's a lot of racism in place and wrestling and that pistol Pez Watley is a much better wrestler than Ric Flair and other. <laughs> I, get, I, I really don't have to comment much more than that. Do I really? <laughs> well, tell me why Scorpio's run in WCW ended. Was it over drugs? I mean, uh, you know, he, he goes out and calls the drug policy BS. And a lot of people have been critical of the drug policy for WCW. And we briefly touched on this before, but he says in this radio interview that the first failed test means you have to pay a few grand and attend a class. A second failed test is a one week suspension and a third failed test is termination. So for him not to be here, it certainly feels like, well, he failed three times. What do you remember about Scorpio's end in WCW? You know, I don't remember a lot of it because he was, I don't want to say he was insignificant. I liked his work, you know, and, and when Too Cold was on, um, when he was on his game, he, he could do some amazing shit. You know, we've talked about some of the great matches that he had. He was a very athletic, uh, dynamic guy for a bigger guy. You know, he wasn't like a 160 pounder. You know, he was, he was a good sized guy. He could fly. He could do a lot of things that other people weren't doing at that time. He was a solid performer over in Japan. The Japanese liked him. Uh, the guys at New Japan that I was close to liked him over there. Uh, I brought him with me, or he was a part of, I guess, the tour later on in 1995 in Pyongyang, North Korea. So there was a lot of good things about about Too Cold. Um, but unfortunately, he was stoned like 22 and a half hours a day. You know, and it's one thing to fail a drug test. Um, it's another thing to show up so freaking high you can't carry on a conversation. And one of the other, you know, limiting things about Too Cold is he sucked on the mic. He was a great performer in the ring. Um, and he, like I said, he could do things that nobody else could do or nobody else was doing at the time in many respects. But he was not a character that was really going to go anywhere. Let's talk a little bit about the way you debut Hulk Hogan to sort of build interest for the pay-per-view. You do a cut in from Disney world on June 11th on the WCW Saturday night show. And this is the famous ticker tape parade and the, the Viper and all that. And Jimmy Hart of, is, is here, of course, just running around like a maniac and you guys have hyped it up pretty consistently. And you're promoting that tickets go on sale on June 17th for flair and Hogan and well, set the scene for us, you know, allegedly you guys do have a little bit of a crowd there and you've hired some actors to play reporters and Hogan is portraying all the charisma that made him a top star originally, but he does look a lot different. Meltzer would freestyle that he looks to be down 60 to 70 pounds. And it certainly doesn't look like he's on steroids anymore. Clearly he's on, he's in great shape 
but he doesn't necessarily look like the incredible Hulk Hogan that we remember from a handful of years prior. Was the way Hogan's physical appearance, something that was discussed in Turner meetings or are there any sort of whispers about, because obviously you guys do need to distance yourself from the steroid issue. I mean, this, this is significant and it could have an incredibly detrimental impact, not just on the WWF, but some of this could get on Hogan too. So you are rolling the dice a little bit. Talk to me about the way Hogan's appearance changed and why the ticker tape parade concept was the right way to do this. Couple, well, two separate questions. Sure. Um, let's start out with Hogan's appearance. When I first started talking to Hulk, he was filming a television series called thunder in paradise, right? Anybody who's been in the television industry as an actor or director, or even a producer, you know, will, will tell you that the last thing that you want to do as a star or a character in a television series, unless you're playing a character that should be, you know, overweight or oversized, you know, a jacked up kind of a character, you know, you want to be as lean as you can because the camera puts a lot of weight on you, particularly in television and film where a lot of those, the, the shots that, that directors will take, uh, in, in a series tend to be pretty tight shots. So, I think, you know, obviously Hulk wanted to stay as far away from steroids as he possibly could, given all of the, you know, the focus and, and, and the publicity that was on him and WWF. So I'm sure I had never really talked to him about this, but I'm, I would assume, um, and it's probably a safe assumption that when the heat was on, he probably got as far away from the gas as he possibly could get. And he was probably, I don't know what he weighed when he was, you know, at his, largest i guess in wwf maybe in 93 or 92 i'm guessing it was probably 340 um 3 330 i think is was what he, he may have told me at one point uh, and he was at about 275 or 280 uh at the time that we're we're talking about and i only i only know that because he and i still to this day you know he'll tell me what he's doing working out wise and you know he'll make reference to certain points in his career and what he weighed at that time but i'm pretty sure he came in around 275 280 right about this time but he had been intentionally leaning out not only to get away from the steroid issue and and avoid any risk of being accused of of that problem but also because he was filming this television series thunder in paradise which which was a very very high budget um, project well, that was being produced by the producers of, of Baywatch. Were any of the guys, you know, maybe in creative or in the office or any Turner executives sort of taken aback by his appearance. And I know that, you know, it feels like I'm, I'm picking, but I'm really not. I, I watched this this week with a friend of mine. And when I turned it on, he said, God, Hogan looks so small. And this is a very casual wrestling fan, but he remembers you know, WrestleMania five and WrestleMania six, and just Hogan was larger than life. And here he certainly looks a lot different. Did anybody, you know, maybe Turner folks or someone in the office say, well, this isn't what we signed up for. No, no. You know, and it's funny when I watched it this morning, no, no, I, I'll give you, you know, when I, and this was a, you know, fascinating thing about for me, um, watching something that happened 24 years ago that I haven't laid eyes on. I mean, I have not laid eyes on a frame of that pay-per-view or video um, 
since it was probably produced. Right. Right. So for me to go, I mean, it's really, you, you talk about, you know, getting in the Conrad Thompson time capsule. That's what I did at four 30 this morning. I was sitting there with my pot of coffee going, Holy crap. You know, look at Hank Aaron, you know, in that interview that Hank did with Tony Schiavone, you know, at ringside or look at Bill Shaw over there behind, you know, Tony and Jesse Ventura, look at Jesse Ventura. He looks so young. And I, and I remember this morning, you know, looking at Hulk and his face was so leaned out. Right. And I mean, he looked 25 years younger. I just saw him about three weeks ago. And, you know, when you, when I look at myself, I go, holy shit, there's, there's times when I see myself on TV and I don't even recognize myself anymore. You know, and certainly when I go back and I looked at when I went back and I looked at Hulk this morning um, on that pay-per-view, you know, if you go back and look at it, you know, look at that that moment right before as the match is starting, you know, right before Ric Flair pushes Hulk in the chest when they're standing there face to face, nose to nose, kind of squaring off right before the action started. Hulk looks fucking phenomenal. I mean, he looked like a larger version of Sylvester Stallone in some of the early Rocky movies. You know, his shoulders were well-defined. He was, you know, he towered over Rick. You know, his chest was, you know, chiseled and defined. His arms looked great. So he looked very athletic. It's probably more athletic than he ever looked. He wasn't as big. But I got to tell you, and this is, again, you know, from the advantage of 2020 hindsight to just kind of growing up, I guess, as an adult in, in the business is when I see guys that are all blowed up and jacked up, you know, now I can look at somebody when I see him on television and I can almost tell what they're on, or at least I think I can, <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, the guys that do a lot of growth hormone look a certain way. They have certain characteristics that make it obvious, at least to me, or I think it does, you know, when Hulk was in WWF and when he was gassing up, he was big, but he's very puffy. Yeah. You know, it was just a bloated kind of his face looked like, you know, the Michelin man. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was big. And I guess at that time, you know, our taste as wrestling fans might have went, wow, look how big he is. But now I go back and I look at that and I think, God, look how bloated he was. Right. And when I see Hulk in 94 squaring off against Rick, I mean, you look at his deltoids, you know, and his shoulders, you know, and he's, he's ripped, he's defined and he's still big. None of which is answering the question that you asked. The question you asked was, was there anybody concerned that they weren't getting what they paid for because of the way he looked? And the answer to that is no. Okay. Well, let's talk about the ticker tape parade. Why was this the right way? Obviously you want, you know, I'm putting words in your mouth, but to me, you, you want to present this as something bigger than a traditional wrestling angle. This is a moment in history, the biggest signing ever. We want to create a spectacle. We want to give this a look that feels like it is a, it is a huge deal and it is, but we need to give it the proper context, but why was, and obviously at the time you're working on moving to Disney anyway, and doing a series of tapings. How does the idea for this ticker tape parade come to be? It kind of dovetailed, you know, for a lot of reasons. Number one, uh, Hulk was on location filming Thunder of Paradise. We were on location already uh, producing the WCW worldwide syndicated shows at the Disney MGM studios. So from a, just a purely logistical financial, you know, cost of goods kind of 
perspective, it it made sense. It, it it we didn't have to you know hire a crew and try to do something in New York City or go to Los Angeles and do something at the Hollywood sign. We were already there. And again, remember, in in context, one of my goals, one of my initiatives early on, despite the ATM narrative. You know, first thing that I started doing in in '93 when I took over, and well into '94, was gutting our expenses, shutting down you know house shows just for the sake of doing house shows, trying to move our production to Disney to 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 achieve an economy of scale, if you will, in in the sense of producing our syndicated shows. So budget issues were still a very big issue. I had to mind those those challenges. So between the the convenience and, and the budgetary convenience, since we were already all there, number one. Number two, we still hadn't turned the corner yet in terms of the audience's perception of us and our ability to draw a crowd. One of the great things about Disney MGM Studios, Conrad, is if, if right now today you and I decided we want to we go film a scene and, and stand out in front of a crowd and make it look like, you know, we had thousands of people around us and they were all excited to see us. And, and you know, we, we really want to create a perception that Eric and Conrad are larger than they really are. I would suggest to you that we go to Disney MGM Studios to achieve that. That's why it exists. That's why there's a backlot for pr- production of all sorts at the, at the Disney MGM Studios is to achieve that. We knew just, you know, that back lot and that, you know, I can't remember the name of the, what that street is. That is, you know, it's all facades and buildings and all that. It's designed from a production point of view to give the impression that it's larger than it is. It's designed to facilitate a great crisp look in production. It's all secured so you can do whatever you want to do and you can stage whatever you want to stage. And it was just, okay, we're bringing this guy in. We want to create the perception from a television point of view that there's this mass audience that's excited about it. Where can we possibly do that? Could we achieve that driving, you know, through downtown Atlanta? I don't think so. You know, could we have achieved it in Hulk's hometown of Clearwater Beach, Florida? Nah, everybody would have showed up in their beach shorts, wearing their sunglasses, drinking a beer. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have created the image we wanted to create. So the Disney MGM street parade, if you will, and the extent that we went to produce it, and I admit, looking back at it now, it was overproduced, but the goal was just to try to make it look as, as exciting and large as we possibly could. Well, the next big thing you do for this Ric Flair Hulk Hogan match is a press conference with Ted Turner himself. And this is a pretty big deal because Ted had not done a lot of publicity like this for wrestling. I mean, he had certainly been proud of the acquisition when he first acquired the company, but to get Ted involved like this and to do a contract signing like this was a big fight feel. And the most, the time I most recently remember this with Hogan is when he did it for warrior at WrestleMania six. But of course the big one, everybody remembers is the one with Andre for WrestleMania three. And instead of Jack Tunney, you've got Ted freaking Turner. This is a big deal. What do you remember about this press conference and how it was put together? Actually, Bill Shaw, uh, who I worked directly for Bill Shaw, Bill Shaw reported directly to Ted. So that was kind of the chain of command. Um, and Bill Shaw was excited. You know, Bill Shaw was very instrumental in helping me, 
uh, make Hulk Hogan happen in WCW. He was very supportive. Um, I didn't have the relationship with Ted at that point where I could go pitch it directly to Ted. Uh, we didn't we just, that kind of thing didn't happen back then. Uh, so it was literally, you know, Bill and I, and then once Bill bought off on it, Bill pitched it to Ted. Ted was excited about it based on what Bill told me and then engaged. And it was really Bill's suggestion to Ted and Ted was all about it. You know, Ted, Ted loved wrestling despite, you know, Bill Burke and, and Terry McGurk and Scott Saffa and Scott Sassa. There are two Scots there. You know, a lot of the key people in, in the Turner, you know, Harry Anderson, uh, Vicki Miller. Those are all the people that wanted to see WCW die from the minute Ted bought it. You know, prior to me getting there, they all wanted it off the books. And, and there, it was a very contentious uh, situation, you know, in the executive committee. If you, if you brought up, you know, anything adverse to WCW, Ted would, you know, give you the death stare based on things that I've been told in the past. Obviously, I wasn't there. But, you know, now all of a sudden there was a bright spot. You know, Ted was being validated. All of a sudden, people were excited about WCW again, and I think Ted was – I know he was because I talked to him afterwards, after the press conference. He, he couldn't have been more thrilled. He was like a kid in a candy store. And it is a big deal. I mean, it's the first time he's involved himself in a wrestling angle like this. It gets a ton of publicity, and you guys keep that publicity rolling because you had Hogan appear on some other CNN properties. He was even doing – you know, the first wrestler to do like a call in spot on one of the old sports shows. I mean, tons of, of mainstream attention, but the signing doesn't really pop a rating. You know, the, the debut here only gets a 2.4 rating, which is higher than normal for WCW Saturday night. But a month prior, you guys did a, a flare steamboat match on Saturday night. And it too did a 2.4 rating. Are you a little disappointed when the rating doesn't come in higher? Or is that not the focus at this time? It's the mainstream and all the other stuff. And then eventually they'll be there. The, the rating really wasn't the issue. And again, I'll, I'll go back to what I pointed out earlier. Now we're talking about the middle of June and a contract signing on TBS, which aired at 605 Eastern uh, on a Saturday in, in, the, in the middle of the summer. It aired at 305 Eastern on the West Coast on a Saturday in the middle of the summer. I don't think anybody expected, nor were we living and dying by those ratings. I know, you know, they got talked a lot, you know, uh, people talked a lot about them, you know, internally, we'd watch them. We try to analyze them as best we could. But even at that time, you know, in my, my career, I recognized that look, television ratings, as we talked about, fluctuate dramatically depending on the time of year and the, the number of households using television or hot levels, number one. Number two, the fact that we were, you know, 605, 505, you know, 305 across the United States, we knew that we were up, up against a lot in that respect. So the, the, the Hogan initiative and the strategies that we used um, to, to try to make it work had very little to do at least initially with the television ratings. We knew it was going to take time to build. People that think otherwise, that think you can hot shot an angle or hot shot a wrestling match and all of a sudden pop a big rating. Or if, on the other hand, you have a coincidence. You know, you you have, you know, as you pointed out, the Ric Flair, I think Ricky the Dragon Steamboat match. Is that what it was? That's right. 
Yeah, that that popped a big number. Well, the reason it probably got a solid number was because, number one, it was Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, two big names that were identified, especially in the, the southeast part of the United States because of their, their proximity to the NWA and their history and legacy. Um, and a wrestling match, typically, and I'm guessing, I don't know what that match looked like. I'd have to go back and find it. But I'm guessing it was probably a 20- or 30-minute match, um, as they typically were. Um that's going to hold an audience. You're not going to have a fluctuation in an audience. So I would expect that match to do as well as it could that time of year in that particular time zone structure. Um, but to answer your question, or at least try to, we weren't looking at that rating of the signing and going, Oh my God, it's a success or, Oh my God, it's a failure. It was just one step in a, in a number of steps that, that we knew we had to take. Well, one of the other steps you took was to, Go get a lot of mainstream hype from celebrities. So we've got vignettes that were filmed with Hulk Hogan, with George Foreman, with Shaquille O'Neal. And of course we saw Mr. T, but Wesley Snipes was even kicked around and Mike Tyson. What can you tell us about how some of these deals came to be? And obviously, you know, Foreman isn't on the pay-per-view, but that vignette pretty famous Tell us about the idea and the strategy of getting these celebrities and then how you actually put it all together. Well, there were, I, I don't know where the Mike Tyson thing came from, but that's not true. Um, the, you know, George Foreman was represented by Henry Holmes, the attorney, and Henry Holmes also represented Hulk Hogan. So that was an easy one for us to put together. And George and Hulk had been friends. So not only did they share the same attorney, but they had been friends long before this. So that was a really easy one to to put together. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, I honestly can't recall who made that initial call, but that was a really easy one. It came together fast and easy, and it was fun as hell and, and really interesting. You know, it was like one of those little things in my life and in my career i can go back and go oh you, where were you when you saw this or when this happened you know i'll never forget you know being in shaquille's house you know at a certain point um but shaquille was easy to get because number one he lived in orlando number two he was a kid you know he's a big kid but at that time he was kind of a a kid and uh, a huge star and a huge hulk hogan fan so that was that was pretty easy um, Mr. T was just a matter of reaching out to his agent and putting the deal together. I'm pretty sure Peter Young, uh, who is Terry's longtime manager at that point, was able to put Peter Young, or excuse me, able to put Mr. T together. That wasn't hard. You know, and that's the one thing about Hulk. And, you know, it's one of the advantages, I guess, ancillary benefits of a guy like Hulk Hogan is that it was pretty easy to get celebrities, you know, to want to do stuff with Hulk always has been um to this day still is as a matter of fact um so that was you know that was the strategy and again it was to get mainstream attention going back to the original you know we've got to change the wcw paradigm and change the way people perceive us from the business of the wrestling business community not not necessarily the wrestling fans wrestling fans didn't give two shits whether george foreman was in a vignette or not you know they didn't really care if mr t was there um they didn't really care too much except for the fans in Orlando, obviously, you know, but fans nationwide, the television audience probably didn't give much 
thought to whether Shaquille O'Neal was going to be in the ring or not, but it certainly changed the perception amongst advertisers, sponsors, venue managers, you know, the people that matter in the business to business side of things. By the way, it's worth mentioning Shaquille O'Neal was one of the biggest stars in all of sports by this point. I mean, him coming into the NBA, like single-handedly created a new business in basketball trading cards. I mean, he set the entire sports world on fire. I mean, it's hard to go back and really, if you weren't there, you might not recall, but this is a dude who's got movie offers, who's doing, you know, ads for everything from Nestle crunch to, uh, cars to, you know, soft drinks, literally everything, Taco Bell, whatever. And it's almost like, you know, the hype that Michael Jordan had garnered maybe 10 years prior to this Shaq is sort of helping take it to a new level as far as, you know, the cross market appeal. And maybe it's because he's, you know, seven foot tall or seven foot something. And I mean, there's even a lot of restaurants in this era where they just have one of his shoes on the wall just to show, you know, it's, it became a thing. And now of course, Shaquille O'Neal is, you know, a talking head on TNT and and a world champion and, it almost feels like he's just been here forever, but he was a new hot act, but who's new, who's not new and hot is Mr. T. And, and I, I sort of watch this and scratch my head. Like, why is he even here? And I think uh, one of the criticisms that a lot of people have about Hulk Hogan is he sort of relies on what has worked before. So brother, I drew big money with Andre, the giant, let's get this big kid and say he's Andre's son. Brother, I got big money with Warrior. Let's bring him in the WCW and do a Halloween Havoc with him. It does feel like we go back to what we know, whether it's a feud with the Macho Man or Andre's son, wink, wink, or bringing in the Warrior. Is Mr. T another example of that? Because obviously it was a huge part of WrestleMania, the very first one, but Mr. T was a big television star, and here, well, maybe not so much. It's true. I mean, we, we've talked about that before. A lot of people go back to what they know. Um, it's happened over and over and over again, you know, and, and I w- I've been guilty of it. I probably still would be guilty of it to a certain degree. I'd be more aware of it now um, th- than I have been in the past. But we all go back to what we know when we're when we're faced with a challenge or we're trying to accomplish something. We go with what we feel uh, we have the most confidence in. You know, and sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. And I think in this case, bringing Mr. T in, in retrospect, um, didn't help. It didn't feel fresh. You know, we had Shaquille O'Neal. Right. You know, we had a push from George Foreman. That was fresh. Uh, Reaching into our bag of tricks and kind of bringing up something that happened in the past or utilizing a a device, if you will, um, in, in television parlance, using a device like Mr. T to remind fans of what happened, you know, six or eight years ago or whatever it was, eh, not a good choice, not a good decision. It didn't add anything. That's for sure. That's a Hulk Hogan idea though, right? Yeah. If you had to guess, you know, and I know you don't recall, and it's not like you have the book in front of you. Was there a financial arrangement for the Shaquille O'Neal's and the George Foreman's? I know that there was for Mr. T, but for the other two? No, there wasn't. It's just, hey, he's our buddy and we're happy to do it. Yeah, no, George, you know, we went to his gym. Right. And I think it was in Malibu 
or Santa Monica. I can't remember exactly where it was. And, and I remember, you know, I remember being a number one because I was a huge George Foreman fan. Sure. Uh, I grew up watching and loving boxing and, you know, the fact that he fought Muhammad Ali. And, and I mean, a huge, I was a huge George Foreman fan. And we shot the vignette uh, in, in George's gym. I remember it was hotter than hell that day. And I got an opportunity, you know, to put some gloves on and get in the ring with George. And of course he was just playing with me. I mean, literally like if you were, you know, play boxing, you know, a five-year-old nephew, that that's kind of what, what it was like, but just the idea that I could be standing across from a George Foreman with a pair of boxing gloves on was just like a mind numbingly cool fucking experience. Absolutely. And at one point as he was literally playing with me, um, he, he hit me with, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a right hook or a left hook, but he hit me with a hook to the body. And of course I had my elbows in and it, again, I can't overemphasize how childlike this little play boxing scenario was, but even in that scenario, he kind of pushed me into the corner and he, he hit me to the body really in the arms. And I just remember thinking to myself, I was probably about 180 pounds at the time. He was probably 250 or 260. And he hit me. And I remember I had never felt like all of the joints in my body kind of shift and adjust all at the same time before. It was like a giant chiropractic experience. I go, oh, my God. And he's just playing with me like a child. I could only imagine the power that that man had. Um, when he was in there for real. And it was, you know, it's just, it was one of those little just brief moments that, that stand out to me in my career that I'll never forget. Let's talk about when you put tickets on sale, you do $30,000 the first weekend, the tickets for bash at the beach are on sale, which beats almost every house show in the last year and a half, uh, but you've moved ticket prices up as well. You should. Normally ticket prices, you know, even for ringside or a fraction of what they were here, but you're doing a hundred dollar ringside seats here. You knew what you had and your strategies working. You've got to be pretty pleased with a big on sale like this, especially considering at this point, I think the only thing you had done was like an ad in the area newspaper in Orlando. What's the feedback you're getting? I mean, it's got to feel like, okay, we're on the right track. And that was pretty much it. I mean, we were across the board. I think everybody, at least to my face. Now, there may have been some people in the office uh, who either didn't believe or didn't fully support or were questioning the decision. That's always the case. You know, the politics were still running very rampant in WCW uh, at that time. And there were there were people who were outwardly very supportive of me and my decisions and trying to help me execute the best way they could or I could. There were also people there that wanted to see me fail. They were just waiting in the wings, you know, counting the days on their calendar for me to, you know, make a decision that was going to get me shit canned so that they would have an opportunity to take that spot. Because that that revolving door pattern of management at the top in WCW had been established, you know, long before this. Um, if you lasted 12 months in that position, that was a long time. <laughs> so there, there were a number of people that were hoping I would fail. You know, they wouldn't say it to my face. But I knew who they were. Um, who were they? Oh, Sharon Sadello for sure. Um, probably more than anybody. 
she had a she had a very strong agenda of her own. Um, Let's talk about what that is. The rumor and innuendo is that Sharon Sedella was uh, low key with Ole Anderson. It wasn't that low key. Come on, I mean, <laughs> you had to you had to be as dumb as a fucking brick not to see that. So uh, so her agenda was with Eric out of the way, maybe Ole can have a shot. Oh. Oh yeah. I mean, Oli hated the fact that I got the nod. He, I mean, what was really funny is Oli and I were pretty good friends. We were very friendly. It's not like we hung out together. I didn't go to his house for dinner or any of that kind of shit. But when I was just a talent there, um, not just a talent, but when I was talent there and not in management, Oli and I got along great. We'd always be jacking around with each other, you know, play wrestling in the production studio and, you know, ribbing each other and having fun and cutting up. We always had a good time together. But, man, once I made it to the management, shit changed in a hurry. And, he, yeah, he, he, and, he and Sharon were a thing at that time. And, you know, she, she didn't really care for me at, at any point, you know, when I was talent and certainly when I was made executive producer. She, she and I just didn't hit it off. We didn't see eye to eye on just about anything. Um, and it was only exacerbated, you know, once I got control of the wrestling side of things, because that was a spot that, that only wanted back. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you're going to do next to raise interest in this showdown. And it's a USA today ad. And we just recently talked about this, but I think this is the first time you did it. You spent like double the advertising budget for other pay-per-views according to the wrestling observer that you did for bash at the beach with one single ad in the usa today he would freestyle that it was worth seventy-five thousand dollars for a half page ad and that's like way 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 more than normal is that an expense that you have to get sort of greenlit by ted turner and why was usa today the right place for this type of spend no when by this point when, when I was running WCW, I had my budget, right? I had my television production budget. All the budgets that I had were in place and they had been established usually the year before, before the end of the year previous, the budgets for our following year had been established and were put in place. My only job and the only thing that was required of me was to stay within that budget. So if I decided I want to spend $75,000 on one pay-per-view in marketing and spend $2,000 on the next one, that was my choice. I didn't have to go ask for permission from anybody. And by the time, and this is just to put things in perspective, by 1998, my spending authority um, was anything under a million and one dollar. So I could write a million dollar check without having to pick up a phone and talk to anybody. If I exceeded a million dollars, whether it was in my budget or not, if I exceeded a million dollars, even by one dollar, then I would have to get authorization. So there was no pre-approvals, especially for something as small. If I would have called Ted Turner and or, or his assistant and say, excuse me, but I need to get Ted's approval on a $75,000 ad spend, that might have got me shit canned. <laughs> it's just that no, that that didn't require any approval. Um, and the idea, the second part of your question, the idea was, you know, I knew from my experience with certain radio personalities, um, a guy by the name of Tom Bernard in particular, who was at a station in Minneapolis called KQRS. And I used to do a lot of things with Tom, not a lot, but I did a number of things with Tom promotionally. And I listened to his show every morning. 
you know, kind of like some people later on started listening to Howard Stern. And Tom was, you know, he's a classic rock DJ, very, very popular one uh, in Minneapolis. Um, but they would, you know, their morning show was literally going through the USA Today and picking out sports stories or things related to, you know, their audience. And they would talk about it and, you know, rip it or put it over or whatever. And I, I just thought, well, well, what a better way if I want to get 500000 or a million dollars worth of radio advertising and I can do it by spending $75,000 on a USA Today ad, it kind of makes sense to me because I believed – and I was correct, by the way, in retrospect, I believe that if we bought that ad and it caught the attention of morning DJs who all were doing their morning drive at the time, looking for something to talk about, the fact that Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair were wrestling and Hulk was now in WCW would probably get some attention and we'd get a lot of free advertising on the radio as a result of it. And it worked pretty effectively. Let's talk about the first time you actually put Hogan in center stage, it not only draws a full house of 785 fans, but it turns. <laughs> Thank you. And half of them were sober. That was a good night. You guys turned away more than 2000 folks here. Of course it's free to get in. So you, you have an opportunity to see Hogan for free. And this is the show where we see Hogan seated ringside for Ric Flair and sting, but famously, this is where you guys try something new where you're having people call the hotline and vote for what they think should be in the main event. And you get like 6,000 calls that gross around $12,000. So it is a nice little cash infusion, but the famous thing from this match is when a quote unquote fan jumps in the ring and it's actually Sherry Martell dressed up as a man and Hulk Hogan gives her an atomic drop and then she takes the wig and the facial hair off. Talk me through this. You know, this does not, (laughs) this does not age well, to say the least. It was. I saw that this morning because they they recapped that on the pay per view from the the previous Saturday on Saturday night. So I I actually got to watch what you just described to me this morning, and I laughed. I was you know downstairs like at about ten after five about the time we got to that match, and my dog's looking at me because I'm busted out laughing as hard as I could, and I was trying to keep quiet so I didn't wake up Lori. It was fucking hilarious. I mean, it was so bad it was funny. It was so bad. It was so bad. Oh, I've. Oh, I don't even know how. Cornball? I don't know. Is there a better word for it than that? It was just so cornball. Point the finger to somebody. Like, I can't, man. I can't. I can't tell you whose idea that was. It's awful. And 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 nobody, nobody, of any anybody involved if you if there were five people involved in that decision they would all five give you a different answer it's just it's just probably one of those things that 
somebody said, hey, what if we have a fan jump in the audience? And somebody on the other side of the room says, yeah, but it should be a wrestler. And somebody said, yeah, but Sherry's not doing anything tonight. Let's dress her up as a guy. I mean, who knows how that came together? Ideas generally aren't as – the process is, isn't as linear as people like to think that it is. Sometimes the shit just starts getting bounced around in a room and, you you know, you start out talking about a tena- tomato and you walk out with a watermelon. I mean, it's just – but it was it was goofy as shit. Well, let's talk about the actual pay per view. We're finally here. Hopefully, you watched Bash at the Beach 1994 this week, and let's talk about the show, though, man. Bash at the Beach, uh, the Wrestling Observer Reader poll went down like this: forty six point seven percent thumbs up, twenty eight point nine percent thumbs down, and twenty four point four percent thumbs in the middle. You watched it this morning. What'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. I'd have to give it a thumbs up just based on the energy from the crowd. I mean, I could certainly pick it apart from a lot of different perspectives if that was the goal. But, you know, if you just step back from a kind of macro perspective and just look at the reaction from the audience, look at the obvious, you know, measuring sticks, if you will the size of the crowd, the success on pay-per-view, all of that would indicate it was a, it was, a, it was a thumbs up. But for me, it's just the energy, you know, how did the crowd react? And I don't know how you could look at that show and not give it a thumbs up. If that's, if that's how you measured it. Yeah. Let's talk about it because the best match poll uh, to a lot of people's surprise is Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. It, it, it's also in the conversation with Rick Steamboat and Steve Austin but Flair and Hogan edge it out with 107 first place votes for best match. Worst match was Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan taking on Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. At least this is all according to the Wrestling Observer Reader poll. But Meltzer has glowing praise for the reality of this show. The opening line, make no mistake about it, Bash at the Beach was a huge success. I don't think it was close to the best pay-per-view show WCW has put on of late. But it accomplished what it needed, and at least as far as the first show went, the Hogan signing was a success. The Bash drew an estimated 1.02% buy rate, the biggest WCW buy rate since 1991, or slightly double more than that of Slamboree. That would mean it was ordered in around 230,000 homes with a WCW pay-per-view gross of $2.58 million. Now let's remember, it wasn't all that long before here where... Meltzer was saying, oh, they've got to get a 0.87, which is an impossible dream. And you did it when you see that buy rate number. And this is the preliminary number. Of course, the real one would be higher, but when the preliminary number comes in, you've got to be feeling like, fuck. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Cause I just covered the next four pay-per-views of or the next three pay-per-views of Hogan's contract. Um, in in one fell swoop. So yeah, it was. You know, we were all, and, and I didn't look at it that way. That that's a smart ass comment in retrospect. But we were all excited for all of the right reasons. Again, being in the arena, you know, the energy. You know, we had celebrities there. Antonio Inoki was there. You know, a lot of our top executives from Turner Broadcasting came down to watch that. Uh, and they all kind of got the vibe and the energy and for the first time. And I think more importantly for me, it, it represented the fact that we had really turned the corner internally at, at TBS. 
because again, I know I beat this horse to death, but the the perception and the reality, unfortunately, amongst a lot of the executives, all of them except for Ted, was that you know WCW was a huge fucking embarrassment. Nobody wanted anything to do with it on any level. Everybody was wishing that Ted would just change his mind and pull the plug on it from day one. And this was the first time that we could really see and feel that that was beginning to change. And that, to me, was the most important thing because I I really believe that if I could change the way TBS, the, comp- the parent company, looked at the property, I could create more opportunities for it. And And it began to manifest on this particular pay-per-view. Let's talk about the actual economics of the live show. Meltzer would write that the show drew around 14,000 fans and 9,111 of those were paid a gate of around 140 grand, which is the largest crowd and gate for WCW since 1989 during the Ric Flair, Terry Funk feud. And he says that this is largely of course, because of Flair and Hogan and the problem from a live show standpoint is that the crowd is there to see Hogan and to a lesser extent flair, but really they don't care about anything else. When you went back and you watched this show, it did feel like, man, everybody here is for, is here to see the spectacle of Hulk Hogan live. Are they not? Of course they were. It was a big deal, but there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. You know I mean, Yes, but that's, that is the nature of building a brand and building a promotion. You've got to get them in the door, you know, whatever it is that's getting them in the door, you've got to have something to get the audience to sample you and to experience your product and give them an opportunity to feel differently about it. You know, obviously we weren't, you know, WCW, when I say we, I'm not even talking about me, you know, exclusively, you know, WCW as a company hadn't been able to draw any kind of significant numbers since the day Ted Turner bought them. They were a small regional promotion, you know, that had national television, you know, not, not unlike TNA really was for a long time. Uh, they may have had a national television footprint, but they operated and were perceived to be a small regional company. And this was our opportunity by bringing Hulk in to not only shine more light on WCW as a brand, but also the talent that was a part of that pay-per-view. You know, and going back and, you know, when I, when I looked at that pay-per-view, you know, we talked about, you know, the people who all put, you know, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, you know, as the, the best match or whatever that, that vote count was. The, the part that I dug the most this morning was watching Ricky Steamboat and Steve Austin. That was a phenomenal match. I just – I was so entertained watching Steve work at that stage of his career. He was amazing, and Ricky Steamboat probably wasn't at the peak of his game at that point. He was probably – you know, had had reached his peak as a performer a little earlier, but he was magnificent. What an amazing, amazing performer. And I, I, I only am so excited about that because it's the first time I've seen a Ricky Steamboat match, you know, when he was at or near his peak in a long, long time. And just, wow, what an amazing talent. So there was so many good things about this pay-per-view, but, you know, I guess it's, it's all on your, it's all in your perspective. Let's talk about uh, the, the first couple of rows, because it's very apparent that you've got, um, Hulk Hogan VIPs all over the place here. You know, his wife, Linda wife at the time, Linda is sitting front row ringside with the kids. 
and some other WCW executives. When you watched it this morning, who else did you spot that we could still see in the crowd? Uh, Chris Lemon. <laughs> you know, and, uh, look, if, if you go back, if Conrad Thompson goes back and looks at, you know, a picture of himself from 20 years ago, you'll probably go, ooh, what was I thinking? Just like I do, just like everybody does, when you go back and you look at those throwback pictures, you know, it was a different time, different place, different fashion, whatever. We were all different people. But I'm looking at Chris Lemon, who was uh, Jack Lemon's son, by the way, the famous actor Jack Lemon. Chris Lemon, who is Hulk Hogan's co-star in Thunder of Paradise. And he's in his Thunder of Paradise gimmick, right? He's got his Navy SEALs hat on. He's got his sunglasses. And he's got his little Navy SEALs tank top on sitting at ringside next to Linda. And I'm looking at Chris going, you know, if he happens to ever see this, he's going to cringe. He's going to wish he never did it. And I think to, to Chris Lemon's left was Henry Holmes, who, you know, he's sitting there in his little round sunglasses looking like the typical Hollywood attorney, like right out of central casting Hollywood attorney. Um, and next to him was Peter Young. Um, Peter's just Peter. You know, but there was, you're right, you know, Antonio Noki was there. And if you look closely behind Antonio Noki, you'll see Sonny Ono sitting there with a big old grin on his face. So, yeah, we had we had the deck stacked. Hank Aaron, of course, was there. You know, I think Bill Burke was there. Jeff Carr was probably there. None of them are very high profile or were high profile executives. But, you know, we had a lot of Turner people there. And it, it was an exciting time for all of us because none of those people – the Turner people that I you know mentioned just now would have ever shown up to a WCW event prior to this. So let's talk about the actual card. There is one dark match that night, uh, besides the radio shit, uh, Brian and bad Armstrong would defeat to Steve Kern and Bobby Eaton. Uh, and then we get started with the actual television presentation and man, you guys have a who's who of commentators here. Let's run through the roster at this time. Mean Gene Okerlund's here. Bobby, the brain Heenan is here. Jesse Ventura's here. Tony Schiavone's here. You've got like the a team of announcers here. Do you know it? Yeah, we did. But did you notice, and we wanted to cycle them in and out. You know, I've, I've, I believe then more so than I do now, but I really believe then that announcers, it was better to rotate announcers, especially in a big show like this. Because each had their different strengths and weaknesses. And no matter how good a, a, an announcer is, if you're listening to that same announce team for three hours, you, you start tuning them out a little bit because they just they wear on you. And none of them could possibly be entertaining enough to really hit their peak and maintain their peak as a performer for an entire three-hour broadcast. So my logic, good or bad, at the time was to cycle them in and cycle them out during the big shows so that it felt fresh. Every match or every other match felt a little bit fresh because you're changing your announce team. I'm not so sure in retrospect it was a great idea, but that was the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I mean, it is like every other match here. And and what was uh, what did you make of, you know, it's clear at one point during this broadcast when I watched it back, Shivani is trying to kill time. Uh, he's wearing the headset, so I'm sure he's getting some sort of cue from the truck or someone that we've got to filibuster for a few minutes to get ready for the next shot. And he asks, to, he asks Jesse Ventura, 
So Jesse, you know, the, our big main event, it's Ric Flair. It's Hulk Hogan. Who have you got? I already gave you my prediction. It's like, oh. what the fuck, Jesse? I get your point, Cutter. I didn't mean to cut you no, off, but, but I know what exactly what you're talking about. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? Do you not know what we're doing here? He needs you to be verbose here. Stretch it out. What are you doing? And he just no. gave nothing. Nothing. No, and, and, and it's because, you know, and, and I saw this. God, it's funny. You and I saw the exact same thing. Um, Jesse hated Hogan, hated Hogan, hated the fact that we hired Hogan and being the primid down a little bitch that he was, you know, the fact that there was so much focus on Hulk Hogan and no more focus on Jesse Ventura, you know, he, he, he got his undies all wound up, but he, and he couldn't hide it. You know, he just couldn't pretend he wasn't pissed off. And that's exactly what you saw there. I mean, is is he was at his unprofessional best, in my opinion, at that point. I mean, you're really shitting on Tony Schiavone there. I understand you're mad at Hulk Hogan, but my lord, could you have been a worse partner to Tony Schiavone in that moment than to just shut it down? I already told you, like, whoa. No, it, it was like I said, it was as unprofessional, I think, as one could be, you know, and it's easy for a guy like like Jesse Ventura, not Jesse in particular, but for someone like him who's playing heel and is trying to do what everybody doesn't think they're going to do and and say what people don't expect them to say. I get all that horseshit, but. Yeah, to leave Tony hanging out on a ledge like that because you've got a you know particular axe to grind because the focus isn't on you as a talent and the the focus is on a guy who you personally don't like for whatever reason is so immature and unprofessional and I, I'm literally I haven't watched Jesse in so long I can't remember the last time and when I saw that this morning I went God I'm really glad I fired him. <laughs> All right, our first match, of course, Johnny B. Bad, Steve Regal, a bit of a botched finish, two and a half stars. Uh, not the best match in the world, not the worst. Uh, Steve Regal has certainly shown us better. What did you think of the match, Eric? Yeah, you know, I was disappointed initially, and again, this, this morning. Now, I'm not going back in time, but this morning as I'm watching it for the first time in 25 years almost, uh, the first thing I noticed is when Johnny B. Bad came through the crowd, he was just... He was flat. Now, he eventually kicked it into gear and put a big smile on his face and shut the sparklers out of his cape and all, all that kind of stuff, and he came to life. But his very first exposure to the audience in the very first match, and he was supposed to be, you know, high energy, you know, baby face. And for him to walk out, he looked like he was walking to his own execution. That was my first impression. Uh, as far as the match goes, the match was the match. You know, I think the chemistry wasn't really there. The the contrast in styles, you know, Steve being a very traditional, you know, European style wrestler. Those were his roots at that point. And he was still relatively new here in the United States at that time. So Steve hadn't, you know, completely made the transition either to a more American style. But I think when you put those two together... You know, Johnny, who had, you know, he's a great athlete in looking at him. I mean, he looked like a million bucks. You know, he was able to do a lot of things, I guess. But he certainly wasn't, you know, a, a Stone Cold Steve Austin by any stretch of the, or not even Stone Cold. He wasn't a, a Steve Austin, a stunning Steve at that point. He was still fairly green himself. So the, the chemistry just wasn't there. After this, you guys present a plaque to Anoki. And Anoki is, is a really big deal here. 
um, for new Japan, but he's here on a WCW pay-per-view. How did the Anoki deal come together? And why was Steve Regal, the right guy for the confrontation? The, well, the, the Anoki deal came together as a result of my, um, ongoing dealings with new Japan pro wrestling. And I had been trying to develop or not trying to, you know, they originally reached out to me, Brad Riggins, who I've had known at that point since I was in high school was the American kind of liaison of the new Japan office. And Brad and I started talking very early on. Once I started getting control in WCW and previous management had really fucked over new Japan pro wrestling from a financial perspective. There was some real bad blood there and Brad, because of my relationship with Brad, again, going back to high school, Brad knew that he could probably help bridge that and kind of fix that problem. So this was, an extension or manifestation, if you will, of of a, a desire for both New Japan and WCW to start working together. As far as having Regal um, interacting with with Inoki and getting a little bit of heat, the idea was there, you know, for us to make Regal one of the key talent that we would be exchanging on a regular basis with New Japan because Regal had the ability to work that style, and I think he had the desire to go over there. Next up, we've got Vader working the guardian angel. Um, they go to a DQ here in just under eight minutes, two and a half stars is the work, uh, rate from, um, Dave Meltzer. He would say that it's a terrible finish because we've got a ref bump and Harley race, giving Vader a nightstick, but then angel gets the stick. And before he can use it, the ref sees him and calls for the DQ and they didn't want a pin angle because it was his first major match with the new gimmick. And well, I don't know. It's just weird to see Ray trailer here for me as anything other than the big boss man. And I was telling one of my friends this week when we watched it, how weird is it that a prison security guard gimmick got over, but it certainly did, especially compared to the guardian angel. What'd you think of this match? Well, I, I agree with Dave in terms of his critique of the match. It was fucking horrible. And every time I go back and I watch some of this stuff, it just, you know, I know I, I, I repeat myself and I, I make the same comments consistently, but, you know, WCW previous to me and subsequent to me had a real problem with finishes. I don't care how good a match was, more often than not, the finish sucked. The finish actually took away from the match. It's it's like a, a, a writer or a director of a feature film who consistently wrote great movies or consistently directed great movies, but no matter what, they'd find a way to fuck up the end. And eventually people start looking at your films as, you know, potentially great films, but couldn't figure out a good ending. And that's, that's to me, every time I go back and I watch this stuff, I look at just how convoluted and poorly crafted our finishes were. And I think the match would, Vader and Guardian Angel or Ray Trailer was probably as an obvious of a manifestation of that weakness as anything I've seen so far. It was fucking horrible. That finish of, you know, Trailer getting the baton, you know, after Harley was trying to get it to Vader and then Trailer gets it and Jimmy Jeff, the referee, all of a sudden, again, another fucked up, horrible looking ref bump. If I never see a ref bump again, it'll be a week too soon. Uh, I, I, oh, I hate ref bumps, but it, the finish was so bad. It was just so bad. 
It was horrible. Next up, we've got Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck taking on Dustin Rhodes and Arn Anderson. Of course, you know what's coming here. Uh, you can't ever trust a horseman to get along with the roads. Arn turns on Dustin. That allows Terry and Bunkhouse to get the win in about 11 minutes and 15 seconds. They're doing a three-on-one teasing where they're going to break Rhodes' arm until Doug Dillinger and Greg Gagne make the save. Three stars. What'd you think? Um, again, typical, predictable. You could see it coming a mile away. Finish. The only thing I liked about the finish is that it happened so fast. I mean that that turn, you know, Anderson on on Dustin, it came right at the very end, and it wasn't a pro, you know, elongated, you know, three part story. He just fucking did it, and that, you know, for what it was, as predictable as it was, I liked the execution, um, the storyline predictable, but the execution of the finish I thought was was better than most. Um, let's talk about Steve Austin and Rick. So by, by the way, by the way, not to, I don't want to jump off this too quick, but yeah, that big pull apart at the end. And I think Ming was in the ring at one point, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I saw Greg, you know, kind of bow up, you know, he's in his white shirt and his red tie and he kind of bows up and looks like he's there to, you know, to, to tangle with somebody. And, you know, Greg was about my size, maybe a buck 80 at the time. And I saw him grab Ming and Ming turned around and looked at him and, and Greg just kind of walked away. <laughs> it was kind of funny. It is funny. Steve Austin and Ricky steamboat have a phenomenal match. We've put over pretty strong so far, three and three quarter stars. Steve Austin picks up the win. Um, he, as Bobby Heenan says, gets his foot caught up in the second rope. Of course he's using it to cheat when he reverses the cross body block from steamboat and use that momentum against him, holds the uh, trunks, gets the feet on the ropes, the, whatever it takes, but Austin sneaks a win. How funny was it to watch this knowing, you know, three years after this, he's going to be the hottest guy in the business. Four years after this, he's the hottest in the history of the business. And right here, he's still stunning Steve, but he showed you his wrestling chops here in a big way. Didn't he? He did, and I was thinking the same thing, Conrad, this morning as I'm watching this thing, because again, it's just such a, it's a head fuck, you know, for me, again, because I haven't watched any of this stuff since the the day it was produced, and it just throws me back in time, because I honestly, I don't think about these things, I don't live in the past, I don't dwell on it, I don't have old tapes, I don't have old pictures, I don't have old videos, I have nothing, really, so for me to go on the WWE Network and pull one of these up, knowing that you and I are going to talk about it, it's such a rush for me, because again, it's like, it's like seeing a friend you haven't seen in 25 years, in a way, and as I'm watching this, I was thinking the same thing you just brought up going, wow, well, look at Dustin Rhodes. Then he was still so young and he's going to go on to be gold dust four years later. Oh, and look, there's, there's stunning Steve Austin who about three years and four months from now is going to be tangling with Mr. McMahon and Mike Tyson is going to become the hottest thing in, in the history of wrestling up in, in that era. I mean, there's just so many things that change so much over such a short period of time that, that, that changed the industry in so many different ways that to be able to sit there and watch it, you know, right before it happened, knowing what ultimately is going to happen with guys like Steve Austin and, 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 and Dustin Rhodes and, and others, it's just, it's a trip, man. It's really a trip. 
Well, let's talk about the next match because this is quite a trip too. We see pretty wonderful win the tag titles over cactus, Jack and Kevin Sullivan. Pretty wonderful. Of course, is Paul Roman, Paul Orndorff cactus and Kevin Sullivan as tag champs is something that I had almost really forgotten about, but they lose it to pretty wonderful here. And there is a production snafu as the guys are walking to the ring, the screen, the giant, like jumbotron for this airs a thing that says segment five entrance video. Pretty wonderful. I don't know why, but that tickled me. They get half a star, not the best match in the world here. And it's really weird that we rate a cactus Jack match this poorly. Why was this a miss? Oh, you just talk about, I mean, casting is everything, right? You could, you can have a good script and cast it horribly and no one will ever remember the movie. Conversely, you can, you, you can have a horrible script and cast it properly and there'd be great chemistry and you've got a cult phenomenon on your hands. This was the former, not the latter. I mean, there's just no, there's just no chemistry between these. You know, first of all, Roma and Orndorff. The idea on paper, you know, to you know, Paul Paul Orndorff at, at this stage in his career, even, you know, talk about a ruggedly handsome, you know, movie star look on a guy. I mean, you could he looked like he was chiseled out of granite, you know, and he was a great performer. You know, this this certainly wasn't the peak of his career athletically or physically, but he was still a great performer. Paul Romo, you know, for all of his criticisms and some of it deserved, some of it not, you know, great looking guy. You know, on the surface, on paper, in a casting tape, you'd go, hmm, yeah, I get that. But, you know, Kevin Sullivan was Kevin Sullivan. He's I don't think anybody will ever, you know, confuse him with you know, and Eddie Guerrero or Ray Mysterio or anybody else for that matter. Um, he was Kevin Sullivan. He was a character wrestler. Uh, and Mick was not the type of guy that was going to go out there and put on a match with someone like Paul Roma or Paul Orndorff that was going to be, you know, a, a, a Dave Meltzer five-star effort either. It just was what it was, and it was horrible scripting and horrible casting. Well, it's, it's a story in the newsletter that cactus Jack is iffy for this match. Apparently there's been, uh, an edict from WCW. We need to tone down some of the crazy violence that cactus Jack had been doing. He's also suffering with a bit of a back injury, but when wasn't he, but also too, he had a little bit of heat and this is directly from the observer for spitting on the WCW tag team title during a promo that he was doing for ECW when he was on loan to Paul Heyman. Apparently he spit on the tag title and threw it on the ground. And that led some guys in the office to be pretty hot at him. So the, you, you fly in a replacement just in case, either because of some sort of backlash from the tag belt situation or his back injury. And Brian Pillman is there as a potential substitute. We would see him in the post-match celebration later, but not on the card. What do you remember about Foley spitting on the belt, the backlash and why Pillman was there? The spitting on the belt didn't really bother me as much as the challenge that I had with Mick. And this is what led to Mick leaving, really. Mick really – Mick wanted to, to do that crazy – he wanted to jump off balconies. You know, he was constantly putting himself in situations that were – it was not only dangerous for himself, but he became a liability for the company. You know, previously, I think this year before, I think he lost his ear in a ring 
you know, I'm not sure on the timing of that or a chunk of his ear. He was caught, not that he, not that he did that intentionally or that it was necessarily even his fault, but there was just, he, he, he in particular wanted to wrestle a style of wrestling that put himself at risk, put the fans at risk. And from a corporate perspective, you know, created a liability issue for WCW. And I would try to explain that to him and he understood it, but he, you know, he felt strongly that that style of wrestling was what was going to distinguish him from everybody else. He was right, but we just couldn't afford to take that risk. So that was kind of an ongoing challenge by that time between Mick and I, it wasn't, it wasn't heated. It's not like we hated each other. We got into arguments over it or anything like that. There was just certain limitations that I had to put on him. I mean, there were, he was he was doing shit in house shows that you know made our risk management people lose their shit, um, and we just couldn't let him do it anymore. And that's really was what led to Mick leaving WCW ultimately. Let's talk a little bit about the main event, man. We've been talking about it the entire show and we're finally here. Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. Uh, we've got uh, a big intro here from Michael Buffer. Is this one of the first times y'all used him? I think so. I, I'd have to go back and look, but it, it, I don't know how you felt about it, but I watched it this morning. It really gave it a big show feel. I, I really liked it. No, I totally agree. Um, and it gives it a big show feel when you're introducing dignitaries. Of course, Nick Bockwinkle comes out after being introduced twice. The cue was off there, but a smattering of applause at best. But the place goes, as Pat Patterson would say, banana for Shaquille O'Neal. This is his home arena, of course, and he is the hometown celebrity in a big way. Mr. T is here, and um, the champ comes out first. Normally, that's not the case, but let's not, you know, mince words here this is the hulk hogan show i'm sure flair had no problem coming out first he's in his most beautiful robes the purple robe he's got the big gold belt he's got uh sherry as his manager and we remember the interaction we sort of made fun of where she was dressed up as charlie chaplin and then of course it's time for the main event while we're really here hulk hogan's here uh, and in in tow with him of course jimmy hart and mr t huge reaction for hulk You've got to be feeling pretty good about this. They go 21 minutes, 50 seconds, and Meltzer would write, it was the first clean pinfall ever in a singles match between the two. In 1992, Hogan pinned Flair with a leg drop in several tag team matches, but all the single matches were either DQ or countout endings. Uh, of course, there's a huge response here. You know what the finish is, though. The same as all Hogan matches here. Superman comeback, big boot, leg drop, one, two, three. Meltzer gives it three and a quarter stars. There were a couple of times when I watched this, I thought, what the fuck was that? And I, I would attribute that to some just ring rust of the timing being a little off with Hulk Hogan. And maybe this is an era where these guys don't just lay everything out. These are guys who are very much just going to sort of call it in the ring, right? Definitely. Definitely. Both, both Hulk and Rick. You know, probably up to their respective last matches, prided themselves on just calling it in the ring. They knew what the finish was, and they would just wait in, in, until they got out there and see how the crowd was reacting to what they were doing before they called anything in the ring. What'd you think of the match when you watched it back here? It's been a while since you saw it. Uh, I, I think the, you know, one of the things you wrote in your book was, "I can't give Flair cr enough credit." I couldn't have got Hogan on board if it weren't for him. Trust was a bigger issue for Hogan than money. 
Hogan also knew he could have a great match with Ric Flair. Rick was one of those guys, especially in 94, who could have a great match with just about anybody. And that's clear here. This is a good match for Hogan. Maybe it's not a five-star classic, uh, but it delivered exactly what you needed it to, right? Absolutely. You know, and I would, I would say the exact same thing, not to be redundant, but that match would have never happened without Rick. And, you know, when I, when I watched it this morning, I, you know, I didn't think about that too much because I, you know, I've, I lived through it and I've talked about it in the past, but when I watched that match and again, you look at Rick, he was in such phenomenal shape. He worked out really hard for this match. I mean, I remember talking to Rick and he was doing four or five hours of cardio a day. He was in the gym a lot. And when I saw him this morning, uh, on, on, uh, on bash at the beach on WWE network, I, it was, I went, wow, man, he looked like a million bucks. He trained for this match. Like probably most fighters would train, you know, f- for a UFC fight. He really worked hard. Um, Hulk looked like a million bucks. We talked about it early in this show. <clears throat> you know, he, he was trying to lean out for, for the television series and in, in addition to staying away from the gas <clears throat> for PR reasons. But I think he looked great. You know, he wasn't the 360 pound, you know, balloon Hulk Hogan. He was a 285 pound cut up and lean Hulk Hogan. And I thought he looked like a million bucks seeing those guys move around you know, it is look, and they were both, you know, this is late in their careers, really, if you want to be honest about it. You know, they both had extended careers that well went well beyond late in their careers, but neither one of them were spring chicken when this thing went down. And they look so good to me, you know, the just watching them circle each other in the ring and and it just brought back memories, I guess, is the best way to say it, of when Rick and Hulk and, and guys like Ricky Steamboat and Steve Austin were so close to their peak performances. It was fun to watch. This is a fun match to go back and relive, guys. If you haven't already, check it out on the WWE Network. Uh, I got to tell you, we are talking about one of the biggest pay-per-views of all time. And afterwards, it feels like a bit of a timing error when the match is over because We see Hogan backstage and I know we're going to set up a promo, but it feels like it takes a while for him to get in a position. And then even when he's done, it feels like the show is done early. Was there a match scrapped here? Was that, was the plan always for this to be timed the way it was, or what was your critique of that when you watched it back this morning? Now, when I watched it back, it was obvious that we had more time than we planned on having. And we were filling time. That shot backstage of, you know, being surrounded by, you know, the usual cast of characters was pretty lame. Usual cast of characters meaning Jimmy Hart and, you know, there there were some strangers. I don't even know half who, you know, probably half of those people were. I got a big-ass kick out of watching Brian Pillman mug for the camera. The only person that hogged more camera time there than than, uh, Jimmy Hart was Brian Pillman. He was perfectly positioned. Usually that's Jimmy. If you look at any video of Hulk Hogan, you're always going to see Jimmy like a little puppet in the back somewhere mugging for the camera. The guy's never met a camera he couldn't find a way to get in front of. But Brian Pillman smoked Jimmy Hart in this particular backstage promo because Pillman was just, he was looking up over the microphone and, you know, he made sure he had direct eye contact with that lens and I got a big kick out of that. But clearly we were filling time. If that was produced as well as it should have been, his wife and his kids should have been back there. You know, his attorney should have been back there. There should have been a lot more people that are, you know, Team Hogan, so to speak, back there, as opposed to just, you know, 
peripheral people that happened to be walking by. I even saw Woody Kearse. Woody Kearse was one of our cameramen. Woody Kearse was actually in the shot, which told me that somebody had to scramble to get some bodies in that shot as, as quick as they possibly could. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.